St. James. It's good to see you guys, and um, thank you. It's good to be back, and uh, really appreciate uh, Pastor Lang who filled in, and I appreciate you guys, those of you who sent cards and got a hold of me and um, prayed for me, I keep, and keep on praying for me too. I don't, I, I feel fine, but I'm like really weak. I, uh, my legs are real weak, and I'm easily winded, so I won't have my usual dynamic energy today, but um, We'll be okay. So everything today is, uh, the schedule is normal, so there's going to be uh, kids Sunday school after the 10, uh, 15 service. Um, youth confirmation is on for uh, 1130, uh, 1130 to 1215, and then 1230 to 130 will be adult Bible study on Zoom. Uh, we'll be in Deuteronomy chapter 3 today. If you have any questions, like if you want to participate in that, let me know and I can get you uh, a link to that Zoom meeting. Uh, this, this evening here, uh, uh, talk about this for a second, um, adult confirmation, new members class, we're talking about infant baptism. If that's a topic that you have questions about, maybe you don't believe in infant baptism, this would be a good class for you. Maybe you do, but you don't even know why you do. This would be a good class. If you're interested in this topic at all, it's, I always like talking about this, um, uh, this specific topic, and uh, Please show up at 6 o'clock. Anybody's welcome. You can just walk in and uh, we'll hang out and talk about infant baptism and eat some donuts and have a good time. So uh, you don't have to let me know. Uh, you're just, uh, more than welcome to show up. Tuesday morning, uh, men's Bible study at 6.30. That's on this week. Uh, the ladies' Bible study is going to start up. You can ask Stacy Stocky if you have any questions. Uh, there's a sign-up sheet in the Narthex for that that's going to start up here in a few weeks too. Youth group at 6.30 uh, this uh, Tuesday night. And um, Wednesday evening at 7, uh, screw tape letters, Bible study on Zoom. So if you have any questions about any of that stuff, let me know. All right, I think that's all I have uh, by way of uh, announcement. So let's go ahead and stand and we'll begin worship. Let's begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's confess our sins to God our Father. Most merciful God, we confess that we are by nature sinful and unclean. 
We have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We justly deserve your present and eternal punishment. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us. Forgive us, renew us, and lead us so that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your holy name. Amen. Because of Jesus, God has forgiven all our sin. Hear the gospel of Christ from 1 John. This is the message we've heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. Amen. From Psalm 32. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. You may be seated. Old Testament reading is from Deuteronomy 18. This is Moses talking about the prophet who's going to come in the future, who's going to be for Israel who Moses was. Um, when you get to the New Testament, uh, lots of questions surrounding Jesus, whether he's this prophet or not. And the answer, the answer of course, is yes, he is. <clears throat> Moses says this, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It's to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire anymore lest I die. And the Lord said to me, They're right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Epistle reading is from 1 Corinthians 8. I almost um, preached on this text. A little background here. There's a question in the Corinthian church, and the question is, are we allowed to eat meat that's been offered at the pagan temples? So, no grocery stores in the ancient world. If you wanted meat for dinner, you had to go to one of the temples where they were sacrificing meat regularly. And you could buy the, the meat that they were done with there, and then you could, you could pay for it and you could take it home. A lot of Christians were saying, you can't do that. That's, that, that. That meat has been offered to pagan idols, and that would be an act of worship to the pagan idol. And some Christians were saying, it's just meat, it's not a big deal. Paul sided with the Christians who said, it's just meat, it's not a big deal. But he says, the other people, their conscience actually bugs them. And so, because you love them, you don't throw that meat in their face as an act of love to them because you would cause them to be violating their conscience and you don't want them to do that. That would be a sin against God. That's, that's the background here. Paul says, concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. He's quoting a, a previous letter that they sent him. This knowledge, though, it puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there's no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. 
Food won't commend us to God. We're no worse off if we don't eat and no better off if we do. But take care that this riot of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if, my, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
The Holy Gospel according to Mark chapter 1. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, Jesus entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with this, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. This is the Gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. So a story here about uh, Jesus, in Mark chapter 1, a story about Jesus casting out an unclean spirit. Mark, uh, Mark calls them unclean spirits. Uh, John calls them demons. Unclean spirit is uh, a word that, it's a phrase that Mark likes to, uh, to describe these evil spiritual forces. Of course, nowadays it's, uh, it's not cool to believe in uh, things like demon possession. It's kind of... Uh, uh, it's you know backwards and superstitious. Uh, you know the Bible talks about it as though it's a reality. I think we have to ask ourselves the question: like, what what are the assumptions that we hold that would tell us it's kind of a little bit backwards, a little bit uh, spooky to believe in stuff like demons? Uh, the main assumption, of course, is philosophical materialism. Since the Enlightenment, we in the West have been convinced that the material world is all that there is. And so believing in things like, uh, you know, demons and things like that is, is uh, sort of, it's backwards. It's superstitious. But of course, that is itself an assumption that somehow we're smarter than the ancients, that they were kind of dumb and we're kind of smart and we haven't figured it out now, which is not fair to them. It's not true that, they, that, that we're smarter than them. Also, we have the problem of just experience. Part of, part of being a philosophical materialist in the West is that most of us believe that human beings are essentially good. There's good in everybody. See the good in everybody, we tell ourselves. So human beings are basically good. That's, that's, that's kind of a standard a belief of, of the West since the 1700s. The problem with that, though, of course, is that any trip down the street or a look at the evening news will tell you that human beings aren't good and getting worse. The past 150 years have been the most devastating to humanity in the history of humankind. More people have died just in wars. Have you heard this stat? More people have died in wars in, in the, since the beginning of the 1900s until now than any wars prior to that. And that's, that's not even bringing up genocides and things like that. So what do we do with this? We, we believe that people are essentially good because there's no such thing as evil really anymore. We're just physical, right? But we live in an evil world. So what do we do is we come up with rational explanations for this. Uh, you know, there's uh, mental illness. All this stuff, by the way, is true too. Um, uh, bad socialization. People were not socialized well. Lack of education. People don't know. That's, you know, when I was a kid, that was the big cure for racism was we just need to educate people. But, again, the problem is that it's just not working. To educate people all we want, and racism is no better than it was 50 years ago, 150 years ago. What's the problem? Maybe we should listen to the ancients. Maybe there is a deep, dark evil behind the bad things of the world. Um, William Shire, certainly a rationalist, William Shire was a journalist. Uh, he was one of Ed Murrow's boys. He was a CBS journalist. Prior to World War II, he was assigned by Ed Murrow to, um, he was stationed in, in uh, he was a European correspondent and he lived in Germany for many years. He actually lived in Germany during the rise of Hitler. He was kicked out at the beginning of the war. At the end of the war, though, he spent uh, several decades studying all of the captured German foreign office records, the military office records. He read all the memos, all the letters, was reading all, all the journals and correspondence of the high Nazi leaders. He studied the Nuremberg trials. He immersed himself basically for three decades in Nazi Germany. This guy, he's, he's, he's a rational person. 
At the end of his magisterial work, The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich, he raises the question, how could this happen? Like He's reading reports like from the Wannsee Conference where people are standing around in little groups, you know, uh, drinking coffee and eating donuts and discussing what's the best way to kill large defenseless people, like, like the way that you would discuss brands of lawnmowers with your neighbor. How does this happen? Like th- this, is, this is a civilized nation. This is a, a nation that people, people listen to Beethoven. You know, people studied engineering. People studied economics. This is a, a highly educated Germany was prior to World War II. How does this happen? After living, after, after living in it for three decades, he said, and this is completely, the guy's a rationalist, he said, I don't have any explanation for it other than demonic evil. Maybe we should listen to these voices. Maybe we should take stories like this seriously. Maybe there is such a thing as evil, capital E, evil in the world. All right, let's be done with that. Let's talk about the bad guys. Uh, let's talk about the good guy now. What, is, what does Jesus do with this? This story is all about power and authority. It's the theme of this story, is the power and authority of Jesus. So I want to say about uh, Mark 1 here tells us three things about Jesus' power and authority. One is that it's unprecedented. Two is that it's unselfish. And three is that it's unpredictable. Jesus' power is unprecedented. Look at verse 21. They go into Capernaum. Immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Jesus taught them. He didn't teach them like the scribes. He taught them as one who had authority. What does it mean that the scribes didn't have authority? How did the scribes teach? Well, I think I've quoted to you from the Mishnah before. I'm not going to do that now. But you can go back. You can, you can find electronic versions of the Mishnah online, which is a record of Jewish scribal teachings from slightly after Jesus' day, but they probably reflect the way that these sorts of things happened when Jesus was teaching as well. And basically, it's, it's like citing precedent. You know, one rabbi would say, I think that this is true. I get this from Rabbi so-and-so from 50 years ago. Who got that from Rabbi so-and-so? And And another rabbi would say, yes, but I think there's a slight difference here because Rabbi so-and-so says this, and Rabbi so-and-so taught him that. And so the the Mishnah is basically just citing a lot of citing precedent. This is the way authority in the world works. It's based upon precedent. This is why, you know, in, in your doctors or in your lawyers or in your accountant's office, this is why they put their diplomas up on the walls because you don't want somebody you know, performing surgery on you or examining your body who doesn't have authority from somewhere to do that. You don't want somebody defending you in court. You don't want somebody you know, doing your taxes who, hasn't been, who doesn't have a stamp of authority from somebody else saying, that's good. We take this very seriously. We take precedent very seriously. Do you guys remember George O'Leary? This is uh, He's, uh, he, he, in the 1990s, he was hired to coach Notre Dame's football team. It was a very, very prestigious position. He was hired to coach Notre Dame's football team for like a week. He had the job for about a week. And then it was discovered that he had lied on his resume. He, I can't remember why. It's like he had said he, was, he had played football at the University of New Hampshire, but some reporter did research and New Hampshire had never heard of him. And so he got fired. We, we take this, and it's just, that's just football, right? I mean, some of you are like, yeah, it's just football. Some of you are like, no, that's super serious, Notre Dame football. We take precedent very seriously, and for good reasons, too. Like, I, I'm not actually in, in – most churches are like this. Uh, I'm not allowed to – I'm not supposed to. I guess nobody's going to, like, come and arrest me or anything, but like they would if, if I was doing this as a doctor or a lawyer. But I'm not supposed to, like, preach to you unless I have the authority of the seminary that I went to representing the synod behind me saying, yes, he studied Greek and Hebrew, and so he, he's, he can get up there and talk. And somebody had to do that for them too, back and back and back. Authority, the world's authority is based upon precedent, except for this guy, except for Jesus. He is the original authority. There's, there's nobody behind him that says, okay, you can listen to him, he's good. So, so maybe the father, right, at the baptism, this is my beloved son, or at the transfiguration, listen to him. But Jesus is the original, he is the beginning. He is the original authority. It's, and it's not just his style. It's not just that he says things. You know, so so the, the, you know, the rabbis do precedent. This is true because rabbi so-and-so. Jesus, though, just says, truly, truly, I say to you, X. He just says, I'm telling you this is the truth. It's not just his style. It's not just that he says it like that. Some people talk like that. We don't usually listen to people who say, hey, look, I don't care what everybody else says. I'm telling you. 
like, I don't know about you, but like mentally I turn people like that off just because I'm assuming they're trying to control me. Like it's a power play. Jesus does that though. And he doesn't just talk like that. It's not just his style. He actually carries it out. This is the other element of power here. His unprecedented power is not just his speaking style, but it's also what he does. Look down at verse 25. Jesus rebukes the demon, saying, be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves, saying, listen to this, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. So it's not just that he says, listen, I'm telling you. It's also that when he talks, stuff happens. Jesus has, Jesus has the real power. Do you want power? Do you want power in your life? The real power, you're going to have to go to Jesus, okay? He, his power is unprecedented. Second of all, though, his power is unselfish. Look down at verse 23. Immediately, this, this, this is where he meets the guy. Immediately in their synagogue, a man with an unclean spirit uh, came up, and, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. So the, the, the unclean spirit says to this guy, to Jesus, he says, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now that sounds like a confession of faith. It's not. It's a demon. What it is, and, and I've probably told you this before too, because I'm, I'm pretty sure I've preached on this text here before. What it is, is it's, a, it's an ancient power play. I know we, we don't do this in our world. Again, we're philosophical materialists. We don't believe in this hocus-pocus stuff. But in the ancient world, a spirit could control another spirit by knowing its secret identity, by knowing its secret name. If you've ever read The A Thousand Arabian Nights, you'll meet these characters in there called genies, who sometimes live in caves, sometimes live in uh, casks or in bottles. And that genie will work for you if you can discover its secret name. This is probably what's behind the Rumpelstiltskin fairy tale. Here's this creature with supernatural power who, if you don't know his name, he's in charge. If you do know his name, you're in charge. It's kind of a weird thing. We don't usually, we don't usually talk about this in our world. But this is what this demon is doing. This demon is not confessing faith. This demon is trying to control Jesus by saying, I know your secret identity. I know who you are. And if I, if I can say who you are out loud, you work for me. But it, it doesn't work. Jesus just says, be quiet and come out of him. You, you, you've seen this movie before though, right? You've seen this movie before where the bad guy goes up to the good guy and challenges him for power. And the good guy blows him away. This is like the climactic scene of every revenge movie or action flick, right? It's what the good guy does. The bad guy wants to beat the good guy, but the good guy blows him away. Jesus' power, though, is unselfish. Jesus' power is not domineering. Jesus' power does not function to control, to coerce, to manipulate, to make himself grand. Jesus' power is to serve. Jesus' power is unselfish. Whether it's walking to Jerusalem on that final time and, and they're walking through a village and a village in Samaria that doesn't believe in him, and James and uh, John say, the, the, I, think it's, I think it's the Sons of Thunder, say, hey, th this, this village here doesn't believe in you. You want us to call down fire from heaven and blow them up? And Jesus is like, no, that's not what I'm about. Whether it's in the Garden of Gethsemane, and Peter's like, okay, I got my sword, let's do this. And Jesus is like, no, put your sword away. Whether it's on the cross, where the people who are executing him unjustly, he actually prays, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they do. Jesus never pulls the power card to destroy the people who are against him. Jesus uses his power to humiliate himself, to allow himself to be humiliated, in order to serve them and to rescue them. Here's the problem with us, me, me, me and you, with power, is that all of us want power, and all of us, I'm convinced here in this room, want power for good reasons. Like, you want power because you see something that needs to get done or needs to get changed or needs to get helped. And if I just had power, I could like fix this. We all want this sort of power for good, for good purposes. It's how, how it starts off. But the problem with power for humans is that it's just us writ large. It's me just bigger. When I was in junior high, I, just, I decided I was going to dunk a basketball. And so I started doing uh, leg exercises. I could jump before that. But I was doing the exercises not to become a different person, but so I could jump higher. If I want to become, if I want to like work out and become strong, I don't actually, I'm not becoming a different person. I'm just taking me 
and getting bigger. You go to work and you're like, oh, I want to get better at this job. I want to, you know, I want to know more. I want to, I want to get more responsibility. And so you study or you do some outside training or you just work extra hours. And what you're doing is you're not trying to like create a different job. You're just trying to get better at what you're doing. Power is you and me writ large. The problem with that, of course, is that me writ large is bad. Like some, some of it will be good, but some of it's like bad. I have a temper, and if that temper gets larger, it's bad. I have lust, and if that lust gets larger, it's bad. I have greed, and if that greed gets larger, it's bad. Laziness. If I get any more lazy, that's horrible. So what happens is that the bad parts about us, power makes the bad parts of us grow and squeezes out all other aspects of right and wrong, all other sense of morality. So what power inevitably does is the famous, again, Lord Acton phrase, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Because the more powerful you get, the bigger and badder and worse the bad parts of us get. To where there is no such thing as morality, all there is is the power. All there is is the strength. I'm going to read you this quote to go back to Hitler again. This is a very, very extreme version of this. A week before uh, the war started, a week before Hitler was going to attack Poland in 1939, he gathered his generals and he said, we have to have a special meeting because I've not told you guys this yet, but you're about to do warfare in ways that nobody's ever done before. There's going to be no mercy. There's going to be inhumane slaughter. People are going to starve. Best case scenario. Millions of people are going to starve. Best case scenario. Worst case scenario we're going to bomb civilians. We're going to bomb cities until they're, they're, they don't exist. He had this meeting with them. I'm going to quote to you from some of this. It's just hor- brutally horrible. I'm going to quote to you from some of it. He says this. I need you to close your hearts to pity in Poland. Act brutally. 80 million people, he's talking about uh, Germans, 80 million people must obtain what is their right. And, check this out, the stronger man is right. That's, so that's his definition of right, right? Is that you know, what's right or how do you know what's right or wrong? The stronger person decides what's right or wrong. The weaker person has to obey the, the, that's what's right is the weaker person obeys the stronger and the stronger person does whatever they want. Be harsh and remorseless. Be steeled against all signs. This is actually a direct quote. I mean, it sounds like a cartoon. It sounds like somebody who was going to make up a Hitler quote would say. It's actually a direct quote. Be steeled against all signs of compassion. Check out this line. Whoever has pondered over this world order knows that the meaning lies, he's about, Hitler's about to tell you what the meaning of the world is, knows that the meaning lies in the success of the best by means of force. The success of the best by means of force. That's the meaning of the entire world. He basically pulled this straight from Nietzsche. Now, this notion that morality is the strong person tells you what to do. That's it. Most of us aren't there. <laughs> Most of us aren't writ that large. Most of us don't have 80 million people supporting us. We don't have armies at our back. Most of us aren't Lord Voldemort's. We don't, you know, we haven't, the, the famous line from the end of book one, there's no good or evil, there's only power, and then the rest of the people too weak to seek it. Most of us aren't there, but all of us are there in nascent form. All of us have seeds of that. The desire for power is at its heart a Hitler-esque thing. Now, it's probably something tame and mild and meek. It's probably something like there's this people at work who don't understand what you're trying to do and you don't really know how they got promoted anyway and they do their ideas and for some reason the boss listens to them and there's other people that you've kind of gathered around you and it's easy to talk about them in the break room and I can't believe that they got to where they are. Why does the boss listen to them? And use those words to try and manipulate, use those words to try and create an alternative group to them and it's all like sort of, I mean, it's everybody does it. It's in all these offices, right? But what it is is we're going to get the problem solved here at this, at, at this workspace, and we need power to do it. I need people on my side. If we're ever going to get things done around here, I'm going to have to get people on my side. That's the notion that power is the answer, that power can solve. I, I, I use this example almost every sermon, and so I, I feel bad about doing this, but it's like straight from my own life. Like, I can't ever tell my children, hey, here's what you need to do, without it almost immediately, almost imperceptibly and immediately drifting into, you live in my house, and while you live in my house, you're going to do what I tell you to do. Well, that's Hitler. It's not 80 million people. It's five people. But it's Hitler. It's this notion that power is the answer to my problems. It never works, though. It only magnifies problems. Just, oh, spoiler alert, Hitler loses in the end. 
And to boot, he destroys millions and millions of people, millions of Jews, millions of his own countrymen, his own life in the end. This is what power does. It destroys. The alternative, though, is Jesus' power. But here's the thing. You know what Jesus' power means, right? How does Jesus exercise his power? He loses. He doesn't, get to, he doesn't blow up the guy who's confronting him saying, I'm going to be in charge of you. When the Roman army comes and says, we're going to crucify you, he lets them do it. Jesus wins by losing. What I'm telling you is this, is that you are going to win, guaranteed. If you're in Christ, you are going to win. Now, it might look like nobody at your job will ever listen to you. Your ideas will always fail. The people on the other side will always roll your eyes when you speak up in meetings. It might mean that the legislation that you think should be enacted is never going to get enacted, and the other side is always going to have the political power. It might mean that your kids are not going to listen to you. I don't know. That's what it might mean. That's what it meant for Jesus was losing. But if you could play along here for a few minutes, that's the secret power, the power of unselfishness. Jesus' power is, is gospel power. It's cross power. It's the power of unselfishness. Well, now I, I realize that I just, you're probably like, this is the worst sermon ever because you basically just said nothing is ever going to go right for me. Well, let me do this last point and then maybe this will help. Jesus' power is not just unprecedented. It's not just unselfish. It's also unexpected. It also does things that you can't predict. It works in ways that you could never foresee. Check this out. Verse 25 again, um, uh, Jesus uh, rebukes the demon that comes out of him. uh, Verse 26 and verse 27, they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. Okay, a couple sections prior to this in Mark chapter one, Jesus announced the kingdom. And he says, "The, the, the messianic kingdom is here. Repent and believe the gospel, let's go. And people started following him. Why? Because they thought that what he was going to do was beat Rome. They needed political relief. They wanted a revolution to start. They wanted a new king in Israel. And they were going to follow him for that. And a lot of them, including the disciples and a lot of people apparently, bought in. Thought, we think this is the guy to do it. But when he gets to the synagogue and he cast out the demon, they're like, no way. Can you believe? Like, they were willing to believe that he could, he could defeat the Roman Empire. But as far as this demon stuff, the dark forces of the universe, no, can you believe that he did that? That was a shock to them. So look, you come to Jesus for one thing. We all, all of us do. We come to Jesus for one thing. But his power is unexpected. What you end up getting is not what you thought you were going to get. It's actually even better. It's like the, uh, Mark Twain's uh, uh, The Prince and the Pauper story. The, the, the young boy, Tom Canty, he's a beggar. His, his dad's an abusive alcoholic. He, he begs all day. He, all, all he wants, at the beginning of the story, all he wants is to not go to bed hungry. That's all he, that's all he wants in life. He knows he's going to go to bed cold. He knows he's going to get a beating. But he just doesn't want to be hungry tonight. At the end of the story, I'm not going to, you can go read it for yourself. At the end of the story, he ends up living in the house of the King of England. He's the best friend with King Edward VI. It's that sort of experience where I, I just want, God, can you do this for me? And he's like, small fry, why, why are you, I can give you everything. It's like the, it's like the, the, uh, the, the lame guy in Acts chapter 3, right? He, he says to, uh, to uh, Peter and John, he says, hey, can you give me some money? Why does he need money? He needs money because he's lame and he can't work. So can you give me some money? And Peter's like, I don't have any silver or gold, but I can give you what I do have. In the name of Jesus, stand up and walk. Like, what you want is money, but what you need is to walk. You know, that, that, that's, that, that's your deepest need. Naaman comes to Elijah because he has leprosy and he wants to be healed. He walks away, though, being a child of God. He walks away as a citizen of Israel. You, you, we go to Jesus for certain things. We go to Jesus because, God, can you fix this problem at work? Or we go to Jesus because, God, I need, I need this health issue taken care of. Or, God, can you just help my kids to pay attention and, and obey me? We go to God for that, and what he says is, no, you're going to lose that one, but you know what I'm going to give you? I'm going to give you the kingdom. I'm going to give you the victory. And In the end, you'll get it all. Work will be solved. Your family will be solved. Your health will be solved. It might smell like losing for a while, but my power is unexpected. It's going to do things that you could never anticipate. That's the power of the cross. It surprises. It gives God glory because it's dramatic. 
You never get what you think you're going for. You always get something better. Always. The power of Jesus is unprecedented, it's unselfish, and it's unpredictable. That's the power that he's offering us. Let's stand and pray, and then we'll have communion. God, thank you for uh, being a good God and for loving us, and we thank you for your power, and we pray, God, that you would allow us to live in your power. There's so many things that, I mean, even as we like come in to pray, to, to, to give you our prayer requests, there's so many things that, that we rightfully want to ask you for, uh, but we also want to be humble before you and let you answer those according to your own unexpected power. God, there's things that we want in our culture to happen, whether it's politically or culturally. There's things in our personal lives that we want to happen. And many of these things are good, Father. Uh, we want health. We want relational wholeness. Help us to turn that over to you. And we pray that you, by the power of your gospel, would answer these requests according to your will and according to your power. Lord, in your mercy. Now, these requests are for a health needs, uh, physical sicknesses and brokennesses and, and weaknesses. Uh, they're for relational problems. Uh, God, uh, many of us struggle uh, with our closest relationships, with our work relationships, the relationships with our parents and our friends and our families. Uh, many of us have uh, financial problems, God. And, and, and many of us who don't have financial problems have self-assuredness problems. Uh, we're lazy and self-secure. God, we need help with all these things. We pray that you would answer these according to your power. Be with those who are struggling uh, all through our church and all through our area. Lord, in your mercy. We pray this morning, Father, for our sister churches in the area. And pray for a good shepherd that you would bless them and for pastors Walter and Adel there. As they teach and preach your word and as the people uh, hear and receive your word, help all of them to respond to you with praise and thanksgiving for what you're doing uh, in their midst and in their families and in their lives and in their community. I pray that you would be with every single church in our area that preaches the gospel this morning. God, may your word go forth plainly and clearly. And may, harps, may, may hearts be shaped and transformed to look more like your son Jesus. Lord, in your mercy. Father, we pray these things only because you've invited us into your throne room through the blood of your son Jesus who loved us and gave himself for us. Amen. Now let's confess our faith with the words of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Now let's pray together in Jesus' name the prayer that he taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Our Lord Jesus Christ, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for you for the forgiveness of all your sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The peace of the Lord be with you always. Amen. You may be seated. Bend down your grave. 